Hello and shalom. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I'm your host, Joe Amon. We got a great show ahead, so buckle up and hang on. Here we go. Shalom, shalom, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I am your host, Joe Amon, coming to you all the way from Out of Ashes Ministries in DeRitter, Louisiana. Well, I have to say uh, I'm glad to be back live. Well, not live, but with a new episode. Uh, we have replayed the last few weeks, as some of you may notice. Uh, we've replayed some Hanukkah episodes, some wonderful Hanukkah episodes from last year's uh, Hanukkah series. Ending last week with uh, a, an interview we did with our good friend Hanok Young uh, from Modein, Israel, and uh, Kol Yehuda uh, is the name of, of his organization and his ministry, and uh, three wonderful episodes about Hanukkah, ending with an interview with Hanok last week. I sure do hope you guys enjoyed uh, hearing that for the first time, if it was your first time or hearing it again uh, a year later, maybe, and just as a refresher. I hope everyone had a tremendous Hanukkah, uh, if you celebrate Hanukkah, and uh, I hope you had the opportunity to get together with friends and family uh, and light the candles each night, say the brachot, the blessings, and spend some time uh, reading the Hanukkah story, um, reading the Gospels, etc. It was a wonderful, wonderful time for us here at OAM. Uh, we started a new tradition uh, this year uh, where throughout the week of Hanukkah, uh, some of our uh, family members, our congregate members, congregational members, uh, hosted Hanukkah parties at their various homes uh, where everybody went and hung out for the night and uh, lit Hanukkiot and ate and fellowshiped and played dreidel, and it was fantastic. Uh, it's It's a new tradition that we are going to uh, to really enjoy the next coming years. And uh, so I, I hope that you had a wonderful Hanukkah. And uh, actually, we're going to talk about Hanukkah this week and next week, even though we're after it. Uh, I think it's important to continue to talk about some of these special times after the fact, because so many times we we celebrate a, uh, you know, a Hag, a festival, um, and then we do a bunch of teaching and, and studying about it, running up to it. And then we celebrate it, and then we move on to the next thing. But all of these times have implications for the future, and they're all supposed to have a residue effect that carries on even past our celebration of them. So uh, I want to spend a couple of weeks talking about uh, about Hanukkah, especially in the life of Yeshua. If you follow our uh, Shabbat fellowships, then I attempted, <laughs> I attempted to teach uh, these things the last couple of weeks, and uh, don't feel like I did a super good job, uh, especially on a couple parts. So I want to kind of delve back in 
and uh, see if we can clarify some things and uh, challenge us and, and, and make it actually a little bit more helpful. So that's my goal for today. Hey, I just want to put out a quick announcement uh, before we jump into the episode. Uh, January 14, 15, and 16, that's the third weekend in January, uh, OAM Out of Ashes is inviting all of our online family, uh, those of you that either follow on Shabbat and are with us during Shabbat services, uh, or you listen to Image Bearers Radio, uh, I- anyone out there who considers themselves a part of OAM, uh, part of, of what Hashem is doing and of the family, and uh, wants to get a chance to come in and see our property and meet everyone that's here uh, and, and all of that, we are hosting, we want to we host you uh, that weekend in January, the third weekend in January, 14, 15, and 16. Uh, as uh, also Hanok will be in uh, for that weekend. It'll be a first, his first time back in the States in almost two years, I believe. Uh, and he's super excited. We're going to have a Friday night Arev Shabbat dinner together, uh, our regular Shabbat morning service at 10 a.m. Central, like we always do. Uh, a couple of sessions with Hanok uh, and Hanok and I in the afternoon on Shabbat, and then on two sessions Sunday morning uh, before lunch. And so it's going to be an awesome weekend. So if you're out there, message us if you want more details. And if you would like to plan to come in, uh, give us a shout, shoot us a message on Facebook or email or whatever, whatever's easiest for you. We can talk about accommodations and scheduling and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, that's it for preliminaries. Let's ask the Father to bless our time together before we jump into today's episode. Avinu Malkinu, our Father and King, we, bask in the residue of Hanukkah. We remember the flickering lights, and we are so challenged this year and so encouraged to spread your kingdom, Father. We pray that you give us the wisdom and courage to be your image in our world. So, as I said, we're going to be uh, carrying on the Hanukkah discussion, uh, adding a, some some different twists and different turns from uh, the episodes you heard the last couple of weeks uh, from last year's Hanukkah discussions. And I, I always like to be forthright and, and and come out, you know, be make sure that I'm transparent with you guys um, that the this week's discussion, this week's talk, uh, which I did a couple of weeks ago during our Shabbat fellowship. Uh, comes from or was spurred on by Marty Solomon at Bema Discipleship uh, Podcast, the Bema Podcast. You guys know I've talked about this podcast uh, probably ad nauseum, uh, but it continues to challenge me and encourage me and open my eyes to new things I haven't considered before. And so uh, this this episode today is... If I can communicate it correctly, I want you guys and gals out there to understand how monumental uh, this topic is. So this year, I've really had a focus. I find that every year during the the feast days, especially, and during any of the celebrations, really, 
I find myself, I, I find that, that God is, directs me in a certain kind of area, and I have a certain focus kind of for that year's festival. And this year for Hanukkah, it seemed to really be uh, the effect that Hanukkah has on the life of Yeshua, the life, the culture, the context of Yeshua's life and ministry. Um, we know, of course, Hanukkah, you know, mid-2nd century, uh, 160s uh, B.C., B.C.E., and, and, and folks, that's not a long time, right? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a few generations, uh, a couple of modern-day generations away from Yeshua. And this, the, the, we've, in Christianity, for sure, from, in my experience, uh, this has always been the silent years, right? And we did a whole silent year series, both on uh, Shabbat and on the, the program here. Um, but this has always been this area of kind of darkness, uh, quiet, where, where nothing happens. And, and kind of the way I was taught, the inter, intertestamental period is a period when, when God, you know, wasn't speaking anymore. God ceased to speak. And so from a Western Christian perspective, it, it really always came across as like, well, just like nothing happened on the world stage, right? Uh, no, there was nothing going on. And you just have this lull. Well, everybody, everybody kind of milled around and just kind of existed, right? And then you find the Hanukkah story. You find out about the Maccabees. Then you find out about Antiochus. You find out about Alexander the Great. And then you start to remember, wait, I think I learned about some of this stuff at some point in school. And as we dig deeper and further into the history and to the goings-on, in the 400-some-odd years uh, between the closing of the Tanakh and the opening of the Gospels, we realize, or we should realize, that it is not quiet at all. There is a ton of stuff that is going on during this time period. And so we, it is, it is full of activity. It's full of, of life and death and war and peace and uh, political movement and and just just so many so many things going on, and the whole point of for me this year of studying more this time period was to see how this shapes the again the culture and the context, how it shapes the Judaism of Yeshua's day, and how it colors maybe or informs some of the things that he said, some of his teachings, and and some of these kinds of things. So, as just a quick, super quick. Uh, kind of 30,000-foot flyover history. Um, we have the golden age of Israel under David Amelech, right, under King David, uh, Israel's golden age. And David dies, Solomon takes over, eh, things get a little shaky, but he does build the second temple. And uh, then he dies, and there's a split in the kingdom, right? And of course we know that due to its idolatry, et cetera, et cetera, the northern kingdom is taken off by Assyria, and the Assyrian Empire is spreading across uh, the region, and uh, they, are the, they are the powerhouse of the day. Um, we find out that that's in the 700s. Uh, we find out a couple hundred years later, of course, Babylon becomes the big fish, and they begin to defeat Assyria, take over Assyrian territory, and they take the southern kingdom of Judah into captivity. They, uh, the Judah is exiled, and we say Judah 
primarily Judah and Benjamin, but you have to also remember that there are many Levites, uh, and there are parts of every tribe in the southern kingdom, primarily represented by Judah, Benjamin, and uh, and a good bit of Levi. But there are there are parts of every tribe. There are inner you know intermingled. And so Babylon, and then and they spend the time in exile in Babylon. And we I've said this before on the program, and I've said it many many times because I'm still trying to get my head around it. Western Americans are just Westerners. Period. Really don't have a sense of what exile means. Um, we we can't, and and that's a blessing. And that's a wonderful privilege to have. Yet when we read the scriptures, or when we try to identify with what is going on in Yeshua's day and the the passion and the fervor and the heart from which he speaks to his Jewish brothers and sisters and the Jewish leadership at, his, at the time, it's very difficult for us to understand his context and the context of what was going on because we don't have an exilic understanding. We don't have an exilic experience or background. Um, the the fact that, that someone some foreigner that you don't know comes into your town, your state, your region, and militarily or diplomatically, either way, takes control and supplants your leaders. Um, the fact that your leaders may have been in cahoots with these people, you know, prior to uh, this takeover and you didn't know it, and then the fact that they move you out and uh, the home that you built, maybe with your own hands, the the surely the the home, the kitchen table, where you have memories with your children and your family, um, that you know your 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 bedroom where you and and your wife have memories of watching TV together, reading scripture together, spending time together, your children's bedrooms where you tuck them in every night and you you prayed with them each night, the backyard where you played and and you know again made so many memories. Now, all of a sudden, you're being taken out of your home and out of your place, and another family is going to live there that you do not know, and they're, they're going to take over what is yours, and you're going somewhere else. We, we just don't have that sense of, of understanding, and I think that we can, we can sort of try to enter that world a little bit. If we think about some of you out that are listening, may have had um, maybe your home was has been burglarized before, burglarized, excuse me, before. Um, maybe your car has been broken into, right? And you, I, this has never happened to me, but I can imagine, and I and I've talked to folks, of course, that you know, and been with folks that have had these situations. But uh, your home is burglarized. Somebody comes in and and rifles through all your stuff, steals some things, goes through your closets, goes through your drawers, looks under your bed, you know, s- steals some valuable things. And you can go back to your home and still live in your home, but is it quite ever the same? Isn't it? Uh, doesn't it feel tainted a little bit? I, I know in one of our Bible studies, one of our ladies talked about how her car had been broken into and. You know, your your car, like your home, is, is kind of your sacred space in a way, right? Uh, things are – you're particular about where things are and how they are, how clean or not clean. <laughs> in some of our cases, you, you clean it or you keep it. Um, but it's it, it's a place you spend a lot of time, and it becomes uh, becomes a very personal space for you. And when it is vi- – that space is violated, 
then it makes it hard for it to to feel the same way and be be the same as it was before. And and I think in a small small way, this is a way for us to relate to the return from exile. Um, we have many writings that tell us that you know the glory of the the temple was never the same. Um, the glory of the second temple was never as the first, and and the glory of the temple after. Uh, the return from exile was never the same as before, um, and and the land and and the the people came back to Haaretz to the land, and it just never was the same, uh, because there's a desecration there. There's a you know there's there there's there's just something that makes it uncomfortable and not it's not yours anymore in a sense. Something's been stolen. Some sacredness, some importance, and some connection has been stolen, and and I think that we see that. And so we have this time of return uh, from exile, from the Babylonian exile, but there's a new big fish on the horizon, uh, and that is Alexander the Great, who is not a Greek, by the way, he's a Macedonian, um, but he, in his 14 or so years, uh, you know, amasses a huge empire, and uh, Alexander knew that he couldn't keep um, his whole empire under, under you know, under his control, strictly by military, it would have been it would have been way too big big of a military, um, and so he just chose to kind of make everybody Greek and and not militarily, but just make it really hard not to be Greek. And so then we have Alexander dying, and we have the kingdom being split between his generals. The ones for our purposes that are really important are Seleucus in the north and Ptolemy in the south, Egypt, and the the struggle that they play. So we have all of this 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 thing going on. Not to mention, um, we have Judean leaders, priests, etc., that are in cahoots with these, with the, the Persian, with the, with the Greeks, excuse me, um, trying to make sure that they salvage both some Israelite, you know, uh, identity and heritage, but also making sure that they personally are taken care of before, right? It's always it's it's politics, folks. Uh, people say that the Bible is not political. Um, they haven't read the Bible enough. This is political. And while I try not to get too political on this radio show, that if you read the intertestamental period, intertestamental period, it is, uh, it is all politics. It, it's a lot of back and forth. So, um, how do we know that they have some cahoots and some things going on? Well, um, from, from Assyria to Babylon to Persia, then to Greece, uh, then to Rome, we we see this this thing happen where in Yeshua's day, of course, we have the Hasmoneans, the the Ma- uh, Maccabees, the Hasmoneans defeat the Greeks, right, and they become the leadership of Israel. And then we read the Gospels, and there's this guy named Herod. Well, it's important for us to know a lot about Herod because there's a lot written about him. There's a lot of information out there. Um, Herod is an Idumean or Nabataean. Well, he comes from the, the, the land of Idumea, Nabatea, which is um, a section of land in between southern Israel or right around southern Israel, uh, Jordan, Egypt, in, in the kind of the bottom point there, the bottom area, south of the south uh, would be southeast of the Negev, uh, what is in current day Jordan. And as you study who these Idumean and Nabataeans are, uh, they are traced. Their family lines are traced. You can look on the the um, the Persian. Uh, not, I'm sorry, not the Persian website. Uh, Petra, the Petra website, the official Petra website, and it'll tell you that the Nabataeans 
uh, our ancestors from uh, Benayut, Benayut, uh, Ben Ishmael, Ben Ibrahim on their website, which is uh, they are descendants of Benayut, who is a son of Ishmael. Ishmael had 12 sons that would eventually become tribes. Hello. Uh, son of uh, you know son of Ishmael, uh, son of Abraham, and so think about this. This is really important, and this should really shape the way we think about Yeshua's context. Uh, the the Nabat- these are the Nabataeans. The Idumeans are said to come from Edom, uh, which this land of Idumea, Nabatea, this province, this region. Uh, has was also historically called Edom. Well, where is Edom come from? Who is Edom? Well, that's Esau, right? So what you have is Israel, the, the, the chosen covenant people in the covenant land, and just to their south, you know, basically on their southern border, southeastern border, you have the families of the other side of the covenant or the other side of, of the, uh, you know, of the, the brotherly, uh, you know the brotherly discord in two different situations. You have uh, Ishmaelites and you have uh, Edomites from Esau. So if we just think about that as a family history kind of thing, as an internal thing, um, there's you know there's there's a lot of discomfort there. There's some there's some some nasty stuff going on. The Edomites are said to have scholars don't know if they if they actually militarily helped um, the Greeks. Or we, we, we know for sure from history, uh, historians tell us that the Edomites, while they may not have actually been engaged in any battles uh, with the Greeks, they did certainly benefit. And they kind of just stood by and cheered it on, watched it happen, rejoiced in the downfall of uh, Israel, change of hands to the Greeks, et cetera, et cetera. And they profited from this. Now, Idumea Nabatea was a phenomenally wealthy region, and there's one family in particular that was incredibly wealthy, and that was the family of Herod. They controlled the spice trade in through this region, and this is the this is where the spice trade goes. Um, this is the spice highway in this region, uh, from up in Israel in the north into Syria, Turkey, uh, through Jordan down to Egypt. I mean, this is this is the center of commercial commerce, and Herod's family. Uh, some statistics, some historians will say that Herod uh, and his wealth and his family's wealth would have made King Solomon look like a pauper, massively, massively wealthy, and so. First of all, Herod has this this background, right? And uh, we have a question of Herod's Jewishness. Well, some records say that his father was Jewish. Some records say that he that Herod had no Jewish background or not much Jewish background. But what sealed the deal for Herod, we know, is that he marries a Hasmonean princess, and then becomes Jewish, and by this time, the priesthood, the kingship, all the, the, the upper levels of Judean leadership had been bought and sold by the Greeks. They had been had bartered by the Greeks through the Idumeans and, and all these things. There's all a big cahoots going on um, so that when Yeshua comes on the scene, this is who's in charge. An ancestor from the people that rejected covenant on two sides— and 
are now leading, you know, and this is all this is just disgusting. But it's politics. <laughs> it's politics. It's the, you know, I, I'm, I'm very careful to ever compare, you know, America to Israel because I think we overdo that. We, we, we take biblical stories or historical stories or, you know, biblical verses, et cetera, and we say, oh, well, that's us today. And, and yeah, it's applicable maybe. But I want to be very careful, you know, to to get into a replacement thing. But this is politics, folks. We think our politicians care for us and they want they you know, there may there are some good ones and Baruch Hashem for the good ones that are fighting the good fight. But the system, they're playing a different game. They're in a different system than we are. And this is not just America in twenty twenty one or twenty sixteen or twenty twelve. This is history. Absolute power corrupts absolutely, and the love of power and the desire for power and money is absolutely corruptible. So th- this, is, this, is the, this is the brief history of kind of where we are, where we've been. You say, well, golly, you've spent 20 minutes on this history. How is it brief? Oh, there's hours and hours and hours that we could spend, and we probably owe it to ourselves and to the history. It's wonderful. Uh, we'll get into a little bit more of Yeshua's context and look at some other books of Scripture right after the break. everybody. Hey, welcome back to the second segment in this episode of Image Bearers Radio, uh, where we are still discussing Hanukkah, even after the fact, because I think it's really, really important. Uh, And so we're talking about and focusing on Hanukkah this year as uh, how Hanukkah and the events of Hanukkah and the the events of following, how they impact the life, the, the culture, the context, the teaching of of Yeshua. And that's what I want to talk about in this second segment. And we may not finish this in the second segment. I'm going to try to do it um, because there's some some really great stuff that I want to I want to dig into. Um, so first of all, again as a disclaimer, this these thoughts begin to be sparked by a com- couple of conversations from Bema discipleship um, and from a couple of their episodes that you would be really blessed to check out. One of those is episode 82. It's in session three. And another episode is uh, episode 62. Uh, Be sure to listen to those. That'll help this conversation immensely. So uh, as we think about Yeshua and how Yeshua saw himself and what he thought of himself in his time, in his culture, remember he's dealing with all of these uh, these Maccabean ripples and all the things, and and then Greece is no longer an issue. Now it's Rome. And there's there's a ton of turnover, right? We've talked about it, all the way from exile, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, uh, Greece, and within Greece you have uh, Seleucid and Ptolemaic, you know, uh, changing of hands in the land. Then you have Rome, and there's there's a ton of kingdom turnover. Who's in charge? Who's leading? Uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, are they for us or against us? And and all these kinds of things. And what we tend to focus on is that level of history. What we don't focus on, because frankly, we we're not archaeological nerds. But if we look at archaeology, 
what we should be focusing on a little bit more, because this is our world. You and I are not kings and queens and officials. We are not priests and, you know, we're not highfalutin government officials. We're average, everyday, normal people uh, that are worried about, you know, feeding our children and, and living a decently happy and peaceful life, right? This is the part of history that I really want to start to focus on more because we focus on the changing of the guards and the, the, the big empire changes, but we don't focus on how it affects the everyday people. Um, the, the, the mom and dad, you know, with a young family, that's my, my generation. That's where I am in in life. You know, a a husband and wife with a young family that's trying to figure out how to raise their kids in this crazy world. Um, but I also love, uh, you know, my parents are older. Thankfully they're still with us, but they're older. What, what is, how does what's going on in our world and all the changes today affect them? Uh, how has COVID and all this stuff, you know, all the, political junk that's going on. How does it affect them? Uh, little little bitties, you know, the children. How does all this affect the children and the world that they're going to grow up in? See, the political class really doesn't care about all that stuff, but we have to because this is where we live. The political, the political class doesn't worry about doesn't worry about how they're going to eat or how they're going to put, you know, fuel in their vehicles. Or, I mean, we pay for all that anyway for them, right? But we have to worry about how we're going to get along with our neighbors and, and how, we, how we handle disagreements amongst relationships in our communities, etc. So Yeshua refers to himself and, and thinks of himself a lot using one particular title. Says it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And that is the title Son of Man. Son of Man. Now, if we go back in the Tanakh and we look at where this Son of Man title is used, it's, it's used most expressly in the book of Ezekiel. And it's 40-something times in the book of Ezekiel where, where Hashem is speaking to Ezekiel and saying Son of Man, which generally means simply human one, right? Human. You're, you're a human being that's interfacing with the divine. There's another place that Son of Man happens and crops up. Uh, that's very, very, it's not, it's not used a lot, but it's very poignant, uh, passages and very important passages, I believe for, um, how Yeshua saw himself and what he thought his mission, what he believed his mission to be and how it shaped his, his identity. And that is in the book of Daniel. Now, some questions about Daniel before we start, I just, I'm going to ask these and I'm assuming that you will answer them to yourself. <laughs> Please play along. Uh, so the book of Daniel, wh- what is the setting, time, place, um, the date of the book of Daniel? Well, we generally think, you know, Daniel obviously is um, kind of a stenographer's report, a transcription of what is happening in Babylon during the Babylonian exile, right? Uh, so Babylonian exile is kind of where we would put the setting. Um, so next question is, what, what is the book, based on your tradition, what is the book, other book in, in the whole of Scripture, Tanakh and New Testament, the other book that is most closely connected with the book of Daniel? And I think that we could all probably know that that's the book of Revelation, right? Uh, because Daniel seems to be the missing code pieces, the missing jigsaw pieces of the book of Revelation, or Revelation seems to be the missing ones of Daniel. However, we read them together in the sevens and the 77s and the 62 sevens and the half a seven and the, all, the, all the different things, and we, and we 
put those two books together because it it seems like they're speaking to one another and it seems as though it's trying to give us some sort of roadmap. And that's how it's traditionally been read. And this is not a podcast, an episode on on Revelation. That is coming. Um, but we tie those two books inextricably together. But I want to focus on Daniel today. So Daniel, first of all, what does Daniel mean, the name Daniel? Dan-E-L, which means God is my judge, right? L, God is my judge. And we know a, we know a lot about Daniel. There's a lot we understand. A lot. Some of it is narrative, and some of it is just weird prophecy, right? And that's where people dive off into the rabbit hole and spend years and years and years of their lives trying to decode Daniel. We know about Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Uh, which are the Hebrew names and ones that I think we should practice and get to know of uh, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, which were Babylonian names given to uh, these three Jewish boys to honor Babylonian gods. But Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah uh, are their names. And there's some fantastical things that happen in the book of Daniel. But I want to look at the structure of the book of Daniel first. So the structure of the book of Daniel, as we have it, Daniel is the only book that was originally written in two different languages. That's the way the book is designed. It's written in two different languages. The first chapter of the book of Daniel is written in Hebrew, which we would expect. Then chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic. Now, most of you will know what Aramaic is, but just in case you don't, it's a uh, it's kind of the common Semitic language of the time. Uh, you could also say it was the secular language, and uh, by that I don't mean like secular is like sinful or anything. I mean it's just the languages of the street. It's the language every of society. It's the language everybody spoke. Um, and Hebrew at this time was beginning to become um, what's called Lashon Kodesh. So we know Lashon Hara, which is evil speech. Lashon Kodesh is the holy tongue. And he, Aramaic was starting to take over as the lingua franca, and Hebrew was starting to be used and would be used in synagogue later, and especially during Yeshua's day and, and later, would be used as the language of synagogue, the language uh, that you spoke, uh, that you read the Torah, you read the sages, you discussed the Torah in Lashon Kodesh in, in Hebrew. So, uh, and then after chapter 7, through the rest of the book, it goes back to Hebrew. So... Let's just think about this. If you're think about what the just the linguistic structure of the book of Daniel is, is trying to tell us, you have it opening in Hebrew. Now, I don't know if any of you listening have a particularly strong background um, heritage. I guess I, I've talked about this many times. I'm Cajun, which is I'm a Cajun, which is um, you know Nova Scotian. Uh, mixed with a little bit of Spanish, with a little bit from the uh, the you know the islands, um, it's it, the Caribbean islands. There's a lot, a lot that goes goes into Cajun, and there's Creole. Anyway, but we we have a, a specific language. We have we Cajuns speak French. I don't, but uh, older Cajun generations spoke French, but it wasn't Parisian French. Uh, not all, also not necessarily Canadian French. Um, it's its own dialect with some similarities, but also some differences. Um, we also have a certain um, a certain food, a certain you know diet and culinary history and context and culture that's very specific to South Louisiana. Um, we have a certain 
outlook on life, uh, as the French saying, uh, les élèbantons roulés, which is let the good times roll. And, uh, you know, many people across the world know that saying. Uh, but a very specific tie and a very specific culture that, that I grew up in. And some of you may have that, Irish, you know, Dutch, whatever it may be. Um, you, you have a specific culture that is not kind of generic American culture. And so if you're reading something and it's in the original language or the language of your, you know, your, your culture, your heritage, uh, it kind of feels like home. Like, oh, I like, like, this is good, right? It's nourishing to my soul, right? Uh, I, we had a, on a few episodes ago, uh, Clint and Kiva Dunn, and uh, Kiva is Irish. And it's it's just so interesting. We we talked the other day about how when she gets on the phone with you know some of her family, her Irish accent really comes back, and mine does with when I get on on the phone with friends and family from South Louisiana. It really really comes back really strong, um, and so that initial language feels like home, and that's the intro chapter to Daniel. Then all of a sudden, chapter two it switches to Aramaic, uh, uh, not a foreign language, but not not your home language. It would be a second language to those that would spoke, spoke Hebrew. It would be an outsider language in a sense, a foreign language that they are not, this is not home anymore. We're not home anymore. We're, we're in some place foreign. And then it returns to Hebrew, which is like a return to us, right? A return to our identity, a return to who we are, our place, our place in the in the, our space in the world, our, you know, on the world stage, and our space in history and our own identity. And so, just from the linguistic structure of of the book of Daniel, um, it it becomes very interesting. Uh, Daniel also has a chiastic structure, which we've talked about in Genesis and a lot of other places. The Bible's full of these chiasms, um, which is is where you have like an A and B part. And then you have a D and E part. So you have, let's say, a five, five parts of a particular chapter or book or whatever it is. And A and E are saying the same thing. B and D are saying the same thing, you know, pretty closely. And they're pointing you to the center, which is C, let's say. And, um, and that be, that there's a, it's a way of writing that's really beautiful and intricate and very, very intelligent. And so uh, the chiastic structure of Daniel is interesting because there's actually three chiasms. There's a chiasm in the, uh, in the first part, first half of Daniel, the Aramaic half. There's a chiasm in the Hebrew half, in the second half. And then those inside of those two chiasms, they form a big whopping chiasm, excuse me, all together. So um, as we look at kind of the first part of chiasm, and, and you go back and read read Daniel and, and look for these things, so it kind of gets in your bones. But um, chiasm A in the book of Daniel, uh, chapter two and chapter seven, you have an image of a kingdom. Uh, in chapter two, it's uh, the four part statue, right? Uh, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. You have this four part statue, and it's made of different materials, etc. In chapter 7, you have this kingdom represented by four beasts, but it's still a kingdom. You still have that four thing, which is interesting. Uh, chapters 3 and 6 um, is this, this uh, challenge to worship, and, and Daniel and, and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah saying, we will not, and they're thrown into the furnace, right? Then in chapter 6, you have the same pressure to worship, 
and Daniel is thrown into the den, into the lion's den, right? And then the the middle part of this chiasm is chapters 4 and 5, where you have the fall of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. You have this fall of the, the, the Aramaic or the foreign king, okay? So that's... That's this uh, first chiasm. And then chiasm B, the second side, um, chapter 8 is prophecies about beasts. If you read chapter 8, chapter 11 is prophecies about kings. Hmm. See, similar, not exact, but very similar. And then the middle 9 and 10 are about trials and forgiveness and trials and mourning. So that's chiasms A and B, and then they form this, like we said, big gigantic chiasm, which is chapter 1, let's say, is the prologue okay, of, of Daniel, 12 chapters and all. Chapter 1 is the prologue, the intro in Hebrew again, and then uh, chapter 2 and chapter 11 are both prophecies about kingdoms. Chapter 12 is like the, the outro. 2 and 11 are prophecies about kingdoms. Chapters 3 and 10 are both chapters about God's people suffering. Chapters 4 and 5 and 9, the second half of chapter 9, are both prophecies about the fall of a king. Chapter 6 and the first half of chapter 9 are again about God's people in suffering. And then chapters 7 and 8 are both prophecies about beasts. And this is a lot of where, you know, we tie the, the book of Revelation and, and a lot of that, that kind of really weird kind of stuff that we try to figure out about Revelation. So, so to say that if we, if we look at, uh, at Chiasm A, right, you have this, this kingdom of in, uh, this uh, image of kingdoms, you have these statues and these beasts, you have uh, a, a command to worship and a refusal to do so with a, um, a consequence. And so Chiasm A, being written in a foreign language, having these types of stories and this thing, the center of Chiasm A must have a message for exile. It's not our language. We're being forced to worship foreign gods or worship king, a king as a god. And we're refusing to do so, and we're being punished by that king for it. So this 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 first chiasm, this first half of the book of Daniel, seems to be all about exile and how to survive in exile. So the, this chiasm would have a message for those in exile, right? Chiasm B has these prophecies about uh, about beasts and kings, and in the middle it's talking about trials and forgiveness and trials and mourning and and this is uh, this is prophecy about the return, right? This is prophet, and we'll, we'll read some of these passages in a minute. This is about prophecy for those that will be returning. So let's read the center of section uh, A, chiasm A. The center of Chiasm A is, uh, is found in Daniel 4, and that is Daniel 4, verse 7, I believe it is. Yep, Daniel 4, verse 7 is the center of Chiasm A, and it says, These are the visions in my head while I was on my bed. I looked, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, 
and its height was enormous. And it goes on to talk about the tree growing up and the top reaching to heaven and its leaves, etc., etc. Um, about there being this, this tree in exile, which is really interesting. Chiasm B, the center is Daniel 9. And if we look at Daniel 9, verses, uh, I'm going to say 25, 26, 27, but really 26 is the main, I believe is the main point of Chiasm B. Uh, 25 says, So no one understand from the issuing of the decree to do restore and to build Jerusalem until the time Mashiach the prince just shall be 70, uh, seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be resent, rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but it will be in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, Mashiach will be cut off and have nothing. Then the people of a prince who is come to destroy the city with a sanctuary. But his end will come like a flood until the end of the war is that is decreed. There will be destruction. Then he will make a firm covenant for one week, etc. So let's read that and think about how that makes sense. You're in Babylon, right? Daniel's in Babylon, and he gets this vision. Now, we could think of prophecy as, as this idea that, well, like, no, God's just giving Daniel the absolute lay of the land, and that may be exactly what it is. Um, but this prophecy doesn't make a whole lot of sense in the, in the sense of Daniel being in exile in Babylon, so this this idea that we have this this tree flourishing in exile and then we have this promise to return and be and the temple be rebuilt but in in uh in times of trouble right and then the center of chiasm C which is the big like you know the big major chiasm uh is found in Daniel 7 and uh that's Daniel 7 verses 13 and uh 14 now check this out. This is the whole, the center of the book of Daniel, of the chiasm between chapters 2 and 11. This is the center of that chiasm. I was watching it the night, I was watching in the night visions. Behold, one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was brought into his presence. Dominion, glory, and sovereignty were given to him that all people, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So, let's think about this again. Hebrew and Aramaic writing set during the time of Babylon, possibly. Um, these chiasms, these messages that we have. What's Daniel really about? Did you know that there has long been scholarly conversations? And I know some people get nervous with the scholarly talk and all that stuff because, uh, well, for different reasons. But there's been scholarly discussions for a long time, and I would encourage you to do this with – I'd encourage you to do this with all kinds of books of the Bible. Just go online and type out – you know, type up – the date of Jonah, the date of Exodus, or the date of, you know, Kings. Um, go to the Wikipedia article. Wikipedia is not always right, and it's not shouldn't be the source for, you know, ultimate truth. But um, what Wikipedia is going to do is usually it's going to take kind of the, the, general, um, the general consensus, right? And did you know that there's a general consensus among scholars that the book of Daniel was actually not written in Babylon in the, you know, 6th century, whatever it was, uh, mid-500s, 
in the during the Babylonian exile, but that the book of Daniel was written, get this, in the middle of the second century BCE, BC. What's going on in the middle of the second century BC? What are we just celebrated, right? It's Hanukkah, it's the Maccabean revolt, it's all these things that are going on during the second century. And scholars tend to believe the the kind of the default position, the also quote unquote normal position, is that Daniel is written then, not during Babylon. What does this mean? What are the implications of this? Now, please don't shrug it off and go, oh, well, that's just scholarship. They don't really believe the Bible. They don't believe. No, I'm, let's, let's really dig into this and let this sit with us for a little bit. Let us let this, let this really speak to us for a moment and really generate some questions because that's what we're all about here. You know, hopefully at IVR, we're all about questions, asking good questions. And if we're not asking good questions, finding out a way to ask better questions, right? What does it mean? And here's the thing that, you know, Marty talks about on the podcast about how, you know, they, he never was taught this. I never was taught this. I never was taught that there are people that thought that, you know, different books of the Bible were written at different times rather than what, you know, we traditionally thought. And people spend their whole lives studying the book of Daniel. I, I think they might know a little bit more than maybe you or I know that, you know, has read through it a few times or maybe even has studied it. They, they, they've spent 40 lives of academia studying this. What are the implications? What does it mean to us? What is the book of Daniel and what is it doing if it was not written in Babylon about Babylon, but if it was written around the time of the Maccabees and Hanukkah. That should be the cause for a lot of head scratching, maybe some some mm, eye rubbing, <laughs> maybe some consternation. Maybe this kind of thing excites you. I don't bring this up to be annoying or to try to rock anybody's faith or anything. I, I want us to think because this is the normal conversation. Next week, we're going to jump back into this a little deeper, a little more clarification. So, hey, I can't wait to talk to you next week. Shalom, shalom. Shalom. 